Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. So we are beginning sort of a transition in Jesus' life. We have seen His birth. We've seen His um, baptism by John. We have seen His confirmation by the Father and the Spirit. Uh, And last week you got to see uh, the test that he that he took and that was a test Adam took as well uh, I just wanted to mention Adam took the same test but he took it in the garden on a full belly and he did not pass Jesus took it in the wilderness 40 days without food and he defeated Satan and did not fall to temptation. Jesus is the second Adam, the new Adam. And He is our representative. We are in Christ, no longer in Adam. So Jesus then, in, starting in verse 12, this is sort of the beginning of His ministry, His taking off point. He's been baptized, confirmed, He's been tempted and tested by Satan and has overcome. And now he is off to ministry. And so over the next uh, few, well, not, not, not taking into account Easter week, but over the next uh, few times that we're together, we'll be going through the rest of chapter 4 with kind of the heading of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We'll get... Uh, These first few verses this morning and then this evening, Lord willing, we'll talk about uh, calling His first disciples in verses 18 through 22. And then the week after Easter, we'll finish chapter 4 with 23 through 25 thinking about the gospel and its effect on those who hear it. And so with that... uh, Let's think about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And today, we're going to have kind of three ideas we're going to be thinking about or looking at. Number one, the physical movement of Jesus. We're going to see that He's going to be moving to different places. Number two, Jesus as light. And number three, Jesus as the preacher. The movement of Jesus, Jesus as light the light, and Jesus, the preacher. Now, when I say this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I don't mean that in the sense of He wasn't active prior to. Because in the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through Him. Nothing was not created that was not created by Him. So His ministry is eternal. But we're speaking about His earthly ministry. This is the beginning of what we think about Jesus going and preaching, healing, and leading His disciples. Um, So let's not... And and the end of Jesus' life and ministry, while it might have ended on earth, His ministry continues and will always be. It is eternal. So with that, let's look at the movement of Jesus. Look at verse 12. Let me pray first. Lord, I thank you that you have provided your word, that you have given the gift of your Holy Spirit. 
For without these things, we would be lost, we would not understand, and we would be helpless. For you have given us your word and you have given us your spirit to point us to Christ, to make us like Christ. And it is my prayer today that you will do those things, that you will guide my, my words from my mouth and open the ears and the eyes and the minds of those who hear. We pray that this will be for your kingdom and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. So Jesus had been... Okay, Jesus had been in the wilderness, but I kind of want to give you a hand map here. So Israel has two major bodies of water. They're not major, they're small. But you've got the Sea of Galilee in north, and you've got the Dead Sea, or the Salt Sea, on the south. And they're connected by the Jordan River, right? And somewhere, okay, so keep that in mind. So then you see around the Dead Sea, you've got what we call Judea. All right, this is where Jerusalem and Bethlehem are. And in the middle kind of area in between the two seas, you've got Samaria. All right? And then above that, and now this is at the time of Jesus. And above that, you've got around the uh, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee. So Jesus was born in Judea in in Bethlehem. And he lived and grew up in Nazareth of Galilee, right? Well, John was preaching and baptizing people in the wilderness of Judea. So more than likely, somewhere in the middle, between those two bodies of water, John is preaching in the wilderness, baptizing uh, for repentance and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus left Nazareth, went down to wherever, somewhere in that spot that John was, and was baptized, and then probably left and stayed somewhere in that area, and then that 40-day period in the wilderness. Well, he after he uh, leaves this area where he's been tempted by Satan, he is withdrawing to Galilee, so he's going back north, and we're assuming he'd probably made it back to Nazareth, because it says in verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he went to Capernaum. So he probably got close to home, and heard about this news that John the Baptist, who he's probably been around within the last couple months, we don't really know, but he, it's been recent, that he's been arrested. Now, we will get to this arrest in Matthew 14. I'm not certain, and it's not clear, if John was a multiple offender who had been jailed a lot of times, or if this was his one and final one where ultimately he's beheaded by Herod. But we do know that he is imprisoned by Herod at some point because he told Herod to repent. And John, he told him to repent because he was having an affair. Herod was having an affair with his sister-in-law. And he said, you must repent. Herod put him in prison for it. Now, like I said, I'm not sure if this is the point where he uh, is beheaded down later on the road, but it's neither here nor there. Jesus hears of his arrest, and because of this, it says he left Nazareth and went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now, just a, a quick point before we move on about John and Herod. There's a lot. We want to have an influence on 
our country. We want to have an influence on our society. And I think we could probably take John's example and apply it, and it would be the best way to do it. And that's to call our, because this is our form of government, is represented government, is to call our government, our representatives, to repent. To follow the word of God. To obey what God has said. Now, we can, God calls some people to politics. He calls some people to fight for certain injustices. But as citizens, normal citizens who live our everyday lives, not in politics, not in some sort of organization that fights for the unborn, for us, the best way to do it is to call, to write, to visit our representatives and remind them of what God says and call them to repent and to act on that behalf. That's what John was doing. He saw the injustice in Herod, and he called him to repent. So, okay, moving on. He's leaving Nazareth. He goes to Capernaum, and this uh, is actually a Davidic, not a Davidic, I'm sorry, a Messianic prophecy. It's a prophecy that was uh, given in Isaiah hundreds and hundreds of years about the Messiah, that he would be in this area. Now look what he says. It says, he went, in, at the end of verse 13, he left Nazareth. So Nazareth is kind of like on the outskirts of Galilee. And he went to live in Capernaum. And Capernaum is right by the Sea of Galilee. It's a seashore town. You know, it's, it's right there. It's a harbor. Uh, and it says, this is in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now before we read the prophecy, let's get some background on Zebulun and Nephtali. Zebulun and Nephtali. Can anybody tell me who those two people are? Oh, the other people. Zebulun and Nephtali. Two of Jacob's sons. They're two individuals from the tribe of Israel, of the twelve tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Nephtali. We've, you know, we know the story of Jacob and his first love, Rachel, and then that love rectangle that takes place with Leah, Rachel, their servants, and this like infighting between these these two women to provide Jacob uh, sons, and we wind up with ultimately. Twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of those twelve. Naphtali is Rachel's uh, servant's son. And Leah gives birth to Zebulun, her sixth child for Jacob. And that's his tenth right before before, uh, Joseph. So what we have to know is that Right before Jacob died, he put, gave a blessing to his 12 sons. Um, he doesn't say a lot about, um, let's see, Naphtali. But he does prophesy that Zebulun would be at the sea. 
that they would be a harbor for ships. So just wanted you to know that. And then when, when the 12 tribes of Israel, when Israel comes into the promised land, they divvy up the land, right? You get this portion. This is your inheritance. You get that portion. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali are up here around the Sea of Galilee. All this to fulfill what was spoken. Jesus goes to this area. Now look at the prophecy in verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, so we're above the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, what is Isaiah talking about? What is going on here? So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. So if you go, we've been in Proverbs in our Sunday school class. Go to Proverbs and then go to the right. Go past Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then you'll get to Isaiah. Now let's, let's, let's get this prophecy straight from the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 8, starting in verse 22, verse 22 kind of sets it up for us. But the prophecy comes straight out of chapter 9. Isaiah 8, 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Doesn't sound good. Verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. Content or contempt or suffering. Maybe your version might say. Now let's stop there. God has brought Zebulun, the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, into contempt or suffering. And why might you ask? And how? Well, Second Kings, and I'll read this for us. Second Kings verse 17. Sorry, 15, verse 29, gives us an understanding of the, the content, contempt or suffering God brings upon these two areas. As soon as the king was killed, all the house of Jeroboam, he left the house... That's not right. So when I say 2 Kings, I don't need to go to 1 Kings. So what happened to Zebulun and Nephtali? Here we go. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, the king of Assyria came and captured Aijon, Alibeth, Maka, Jonah, 
Kadesh, Hazar, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Israel. This was just part of the suffering and contempt, the darkness that Naphtali and Zebulun endured. Multiple sieges from Babylon and from Assyria over an extended period of time, taken, pulled from their homes, and taken to foreign lands. But why? Why would such a thing happen to these people? If you look in chapter 17 of 2 Kings, the title tells you all in verse 7, exile because of idolatry. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs and the kings of Israel's had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtowers to fortified cities. They did bad things towards the Lord. Idolatry, disobedience, sin... They had turned away from God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and given them their, their inheritance. But here is where the prophet speaks of this great light. Back in Isaiah 9, he says, But in the latter time, Zebulun and Nephtali, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. Pay attention to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now all of that, all of that backstory, all of that information, so that you can see that Christ has come to Zebulun and Naphtali, to this area, and He has come as a great light. Jesus is the light. He proclaims in John 8, I am light. Now, I want us to spend some time this morning thinking, considering what this means, that Jesus is the light, or as in referred to in this prophecy, a great light. But in order to understand light, you have to also understand darkness. So this passage would not make any sense if they did not dwell in darkness. I was at Lowe's the other day, and I've been wanting to buy a flashlight for a a while now. And it's been kind of a deal because I've done it once, and then on the way home from buying it, I was so excited, I showed Sylvia, and she goes, she turned it on, and it was UV, it was purple. And I was like, that does me no good. And you can test it too. You know, you can test most of your flashlights before you buy them. Well, I'm in Lowe's at noon and it's bright as can be in there. So you push a button on the back of the flashlight and you shine it down, you don't see anything. And so, and yesterday or whatever day it was we were there, I was trying to find like a one with high lumens and that would shine real bright. 
you know, you push it and you're like, I can't see any. I cannot see anything. That the, I can't, it doesn't care if this is a thousand lumens. It's so bright in here, I can't see this light. If it was pitch black dark and I turned that flashlight on, I would see the light. And the light would not just be visible, but it then would reveal all that is around me and all that was in front of me. So this is why Jesus says He is light. Because everything else around Him is darkness. And what do we mean when we say darkness? Why, what, is, what is going on with Zebulun and Nephtali in this area that they're in darkness? Well, let me read you a few verses to help us to understand darkness. Number one, who is God? God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Um... Number two, what partnership, this is going to help us go along here. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Okay, so there's two things here, light and darkness. And Paul compares them to righteousness and lawlessness. Light, righteousness, dark, lawlessness. And then we have this, everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Lawlessness or sin is lawlessness. So we see in darkness here, here's God, light, darkness over here. God, righteousness, darkness, lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. Whoever practices sin John says, is of the devil. So we see this huge contrast here of darkness and light, righteousness and lawlessness and sin, God and Satan. So when we talk about eternal things, it's really black and white. It's really night and day. It's, there's no gray here. There's no, oh, the sun's up, I can kind of see a little bit, I can't see. No, it is one or the other. You are in the dark or you are in the light. You are either of your father, God, or you are of your father, the devil. Those are Jesus' words. This is the darkness that the great light comes into. Darkness represents everything opposite of God. It represents sin, disobedience, idolatry, lawlessness. And it's not that God's presence isn't in darkness. And we have to think about this. Is God omnipresent? Is He always present everywhere? Yes. It's not the absence of God's presence, because then we would say that God can't be present somewhere. That's heresy. God is always present. But it's the absence of God's blessing. It is the absence of God's blessing. So I want to read for you, and I want you to 
I want you to listen. You can write the passage down and go back and read it this week. But I want you to listen carefully as I read to you what darkness truly is. Deuteronomy 28. Here is darkness, and bear with me. I want to read as much as I can. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all that His commandments and His statutes, and then I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration, and all that you undertake to do, until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you, until He has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat, and with drought and with blight and with the mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain on your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs of itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the, blood, as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. Now I can keep going on and on and on all the way to the end of chapter 28. And there's a whole other page I haven't read of darkness, of the curse of God to those who follow their own way. Those who have not trusted His Word and obeyed His commandment. And your response might be, well, that's the Old Testament, Luke. That was to Israel, Luke. It's not true. It was to Israel. But this is the reality of all people apart from their union with Christ. All people... This is darkness, the presence of God's curse. But, and I'm going to also use this as a reason to show you this is for all people. Paul told the Galatians that you are free because God cursed His Son. As Christ hung on the cross... His death was just not a physical death, but He took on the curse of God. 
just so you don't think I'm making it up, Galatians chapter 3, he says, For all who rely on, well, let me go down. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, which I just read, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Zebulun, Nephtali, the people dwelling in the darkness, in the region of the shadow of death, have seen a great light. Christ has come among them. As they are in darkness, His light, His salvific, redeeming light shines among them. This is... You go and read all that Neft, this area, and you, when you're in the uh, Chronicles and Kings, it's, they're referred to as Israel because Israel splits. You've got Judah and Israel. Wicked people. In deserving of nothing. Nothing. Other than judgment and wrath. But God tells them through Isaiah, for some reason... For some reason, as he has thrusted them into darkness, no longer. But they have seen a great light. You have multiplied the nations and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. This is what is called grace. Not only not only not receiving what you deserve judgment, but receiving something that you do not deserve, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace and mercy of Him. This is the light that dwells, that has come into this dwelling of darkness. How great is this light? The darkness cannot overcome it. The light of Christ has overcome the darkness. Now, just a few things about light before we move on. What does it do? It reveals. Light reveals. Jesus reveals. Reveals truth and reveals sin. When Christ... The light of life shines. It reveals truth to someone. It removes falsehoods. And here are the falsehoods that I think you need to be aware of. You are not a good person. Jesus said, why do you call me good to the the rich young ruler? Not saying that he wasn't good. But that man's understanding of good was wrong. We are not righteous of our own self. We have not done anything for God to look upon us and say, good. Nothing. We are not good. Here's another one. God is so loving, He can't send me to hell. He won't send me to hell. Or God doesn't send me to hell. The light 
of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us otherwise. It tells us otherwise. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all mouths will be stopped. And no one will have an excuse. He is too good to not judge and condemn. And the last one, with the light, when the light shines in someone's heart, they see that Jesus is the only way to the kingdom of heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And when this truth is revealed, sin is revealed. Sin is revealed. That's a good thing for some and a bad thing for others. When the light shines on the darkness and sin is revealed for those who are believing and repenting, that light is helpful. It helps us to see our sin. But that same light will reveal sin and it will reveal it in judgment. There's a verse we all know and love and we use it all the time. And it says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and, and spirit, of bone and marrow. And then we typically stop there. The point of that passage is in the next verse. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Jesus says, I have come as a light into this world and I shine in the darkness. Those who are in the darkness will hide because their deeds will be exposed. The light of Christ exposes sin. And for those who are in Christ through faith and faith alone, there's repentance and forgiveness. But for those who are not, there's condemnation and judgment. Because there is there now there is there now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. In Christ Jesus, no more condemnation. And it's not, well, if I do good this year, then I'm gonna stay in that state. No. For those who have been joined with Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, have been given new life. There is now for no condemnation for you. You are free from the sin and guilt because you have been covered with the blood of Christ. You have been counted righteous. Not that you have done things that are righteous, but you are counted as righteous because of the light, because of Christ. Now one more thing. Uh, and that it, the light gives life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me just point something out. When J Jesus, I'm sorry, when John the Baptist makes this statement, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believe, have eternal life. But then he brings condemnation. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So here's the warning. You cannot say that you believe and then not obey. 
Your obedience shows that you believe. So if we say something, if we are fruitless trees, we'll be ready to be chopped down. One last word back in Matthew 4 on this prophecy. It says, In those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death. The shadow of death. Death's shadow. Is there darkness or light there? Darkness. Darkness of the shadow of death. All mankind fear death. It is a weapon of Satan's. Hebrews 2 says that Satan uses that fear and enslaves us all of our lives. Because we all will die. The wages of sin is death, physical and eternal. But when the great light came, He came as man. And He defeated death and Him who has hold of death. We do not have to live in fear of death. Because God, through Jesus Christ, has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And I, when I read this, it made me think of, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you God are with me. What a promise. What a promise you have today, tomorrow, and forever. That as we pass through this dying, twisted world. And as we have those all around us to entice us to sin. To live in darkness We need not fear one bit because we have a shepherd. We have a shepherd who loves us and cares for us and he has us in his hold. And what does Jesus say about his sheep? No one will snatch them from my hand. No one. Death has become a friend to us because death brings us home. Death brings us to our shepherd, our father, our elder brother. We need not fear the shadow of death. We need not fear darkness. Now look what it says in verse 17. As we move from... The light of Jesus or Jesus as light to Jesus as preacher. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I see I'm past time, so I will draw this through quickly. Jesus was a preacher. And that word 
isn't a Christian word. We didn't make that up. When Matthew and the Gospel writers made this, they didn't make that word up. It already existed. Uh, Her- uh, Caesar had preachers. Uh, Herod probably had preachers. And they're called heralds. Messengers. And when Caesar would have a message or made a declaration or decreed something, he would get his, he would get his heralds, his messengers, and send them out. Here's what you need to say. And that's that word, preach. To herald, to proclaim. Same word. Now, if a herald left Caesar and is like, well, you know, if he just would have said it this way, I think they'll accept it a little bit better. Or maybe I'll just say, well, he forgot to, he forgot to mention this. That was... If a herald or a messenger did that, they were in big trouble when they got back. They had nothing to say but what the king told them to say. And this is all preachers and all preaching. There's nothing to be said that hasn't already been said. We have been given a message and it has been laid out for us and we're not to divert from it We're not to add to it. We're not to take away from it. We're not to make it better. Because you can't make it better. We're not to make it nice and palatable for other people to accept. That's what you have to hold me accountable for. That I say it because the Bible says it. And I say it in love. I mean, you're not getting out so quick. You need to be saying it too. This is the message given to us, the body of Christ. And we are to all to preach it, proclaim it. And we don't add to it. We don't, and we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. All who believe. There is nothing you can say other than that. What? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you what I received. Do you know who he received it from? The lips of Jesus. That Christ died according to the Scripture. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And that he died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead in accordance with Scripture. Don't change it. Don't try to make it better or pretty. Paul tells the Galatians, I'm so upset that you are already changing it. And he said, whoever changes the gospel will be cursed. If an angel changes it, you will be cursed. If I, Paul, come back to you and I preach a different gospel, I'll be accursed. We want life to, pro- life to come from Ozark's Bible Church, eternal life. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the word of God. Let it change us. Let it direct us. Not the world. Not psychology. Not the wisdom of the age but the Word of God. 
Jesus came preaching the gospel. And it was the Old Testament for him. We know this whole scripture points to Christ. He did not deviate. He did not make something up. He came as one with the Father, bearing witness about Himself as the Father bore witness about Him. Can I just, and I'll just say something. Turn, turn the TV preachers off. Turn them off. Now there might be a couple on there that are okay, but it ain't worth it to hear what else false preaching, false gospels come from all of these channels with three letters. Turn them off. We'll speak more to the gospel in a couple weeks as we get to verse 23. And tonight, as we come back together, we will look at Jesus calling His first disciples. Um and what it means to be a disciple. But lastly, I just want to remind us that this is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry that we are celebrating this week. He withdrew to Galilee from Nazareth, not in fear of being arrested or fear of death, but by knowing that he needed to go to Galilee so that he could go back down to Jerusalem. As he told his disciples, I will go to Jerusalem to be arrested and killed and raised on the third day. So I I ask you to spend some time, pick a gospel and read the last few chapters this week as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter. There is joy in their sorrow this week as we reflect on the crucifixion of Christ. And so again, I want to remind you all to join us Friday at 630 uh, and then Sunday as we celebrate our risen Savior. Um, And lastly, Paul says that whoever believes in their heart that Jesus was raised from the dead by God and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they will be saved. There is a true heart in belief and a confession with the mouth of that belief. Not just that you know it, but that Jesus is Lord, King of kings, your ruler, your master. You belong to Him. That is a confession that not everyone wants to make. And that is a confession that comes with a cost. And so I pray that if there is any of us who say we believe, but has not bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord, that by the power of the Spirit of God, that He would bring you to humility and true belief and repentance. And if you want to have a conversation with me about that, I pray that you call me, text me, come to me afterwards. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Show that you truly believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you today.